You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you are looking for any type of battery, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail store and talk with a battery specialist, whether you need a battery for your truck or a vehicle, a specialized batteries that are hard to find, or something as simple as a TV remote control battery or batteries for your trail cameras. These guys can help you. They're going to give you the best battery, the best bang for your buck. And the best part about it is this company has been around for a very long time. So that means they know how to treat their customers, right? For more information about interstate batteries, the products that they have, the culture, the business history, stop into their website, interstatebatteries.com. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. Ladies and gentlemen, well, I don't know why I'm laughing already, but welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today we have a really good episode, right? Bob Polanik is back on the podcast. He's kind of uh, my co-host these days, and we kind of get into a strategy breakdown. We talk about strategy changes or changes to our overall strategy that have impacted us the most in becoming successful. And what we mean by successful is it doesn't necessarily mean that you are putting a big buck on the ground. What it means is you're getting more encounters, you're having more experiences, uh, you're learning more from the, you know, from the field. And that's what we talk about today. Um, We talk about how a simple strategy change can lead to more success, right? And and that depends on what your success is. That could be putting meat in the freezer. That could be chasing multiple older age class bucks. That could be, you know, one of whatever your success is, these strategies that we talk about, we feel that 
uh, if we do that, we could, we, we've been more successful. So that's what today's uh, podcast is about. We do a little BS and upfront, we do a little current events upfront. And then towards the end of this episode, we talk about, I don't know how we get to this point, but we talk about uh, shot placement and where we feel that uh, we like to shoot deer. Obviously, broadside double lung shots are the best, but those aren't always available, right? So we talk about shot placement. We talk about past uh, uh, shot placements on deer that we've killed, maybe even deer that we haven't killed, and uh, just kind of run the gamut on that. So that's that's an overview of today's podcast. Now, before we get into today's podcast, I want to send a shout out to Ozonics right? And Ozonics has been in my pack for a long time, right? This is a commercial, but I have an absolute, man, this, this product is a, it's kind of a game changer. I'll tell you, I'll tell you in this particular episode, we talk about how, uh, the lone wolf tree stand had kind of changed the way I hunt. Now, Ozonics in a way, kind of changed the way I hunt as well and not necessarily from an overall strategy but it allows me to be more aggressive on specific hunts so uh, what I'm going to say is I need everybody to go to ozonicshunting.com take a look at everything that these guys are offering they have uh, a variety of price points that I'm sure meet for whatever you're trying to accomplish but their scent elimination products in my opinion work not only in the field but outside of the field so again visit ozonicshunting.com and uh, let's see i got a discount code for you here if you purchase a if you purchase a hr 300 or an hr 230 or the new orion if you enter the discount code nfc19 you're going to get a free dry wash bag so Check out ozonicshunting.com and let's get into today's episode. In three, two, one. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics and back in the sidecart. Or what device would you like to be riding in this hypothetical scenario? Uh, the front basket made out of straw. Okay. Bicycle. Okay, like the ET. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, For sure. riding in the front basket of this bicycle <laughs> is Bob Polanik. What's up, man? Not too much, Dan. How are you doing? Oh, you know, hanging in there. Just, uh, I don't know, having a good old time <laughs> living that. Yeah. You know, I guess we're not necessarily in quarantine anymore, but we're not back to normal yet. So, you know, I. My life really hadn't changed too much because I'm I'm home all the time anyway. So I don't know. Kids just the kids just aren't gone. They're here and that makes life crazy. So Right. And no, you, I, you live out in the country, so other than going to work, right? Are are you back to work now? I've been at work the whole time. I am uh I am very essential. I okay. am water and wastewater treatment. So people um, gotta people gotta poop. Yeah, and they keep drinking water and peeing as well. So, yep. they, you know, if everyone just chill on that, I could get some time <laughs> off. But... So when you take vac- when you take vacation, is there like a uh, an email that goes out to your township that's just like, hey, do us a favor and don't 
poop or pee so much no no no, no okay I, we got a, we got a pretty good uh crew here and yeah this our our, our uh you know water a lot of our uh, all of our water for our specific township comes from the ground comes out of wells and uh stored in a big water tower and then yeah the wastewater plant i mean everything's automated you can control basically everything right from your cell phone um so yeah and everyone everyone that i work with is pretty well trained and they're uh, pretty smart guys so cool no i i have uh, been with my company for a long time so i get I think five wait five weeks of paid vacation and then um kind of had an agreement with my my manager my regional manager uh that i can take another two to three unpaid so unpaid so weeks yeah. yes so t- typically i take about eight weeks of vacation a year Jeez, man so i tell you what i uh you know when you're driving down the road in the summertime and you see it's like 90 degrees outside and you see those guys busting their ass laying concrete or building roads or or uh and they you, you just look at them and you go i'm glad that's not me but right. i got a buddy uh he lives in wisconsin and he works on a road crew like that and and i i'm sure i've told this story before but he works almost every single day when the weather is nice the only time he really gets breaks or you know days off is when it rains and they can't work or if it's a holiday and he gets like the 4th of July off but other than that he's working but september 1st hits and he's done like he his boss lays him off so september october november december january and I think even February. So he works a whole like March, see March, April, May, June, July, August. He might even work into September sometimes depending on what they need him, but he works a whole year in 6 months and then he gets yeah. 6 months late they lay him off for 6 months cuz you can't really do a lot of road construction during the winter months. So <laughs> so he goes and he, he goes on elk hunts and antelope hunts and he's like in his forties. He's unmarried. He lives that bachelor lifestyle that right. we all wish we could. Yeah. Somewhat. I somewhat. mean, um, I, yeah, I used to travel for work. I did that for about eight years and mine was, um, like dredging and, um, environmental restoration all like on the dredging side of the world. And, uh, so yeah, everything was travel for work everywhere from, I've been on, every coast the gulf middle of the state everywhere and uh yeah that was all 80 90 hours a week yep. that was typically march through uh early november and then um yeah pretty good either either we get a little bit of shop work back at our office where where i live um or just get laid off but uh no i would i would rather take the 40 hours a week make my own schedule and the, the eight weeks off a, a year. It's, it's a lot better. So, Amen. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, not a lot of people can say that, dude. I lived in the, I lived in the corporate cubicle world for a while and I, I had worked in the company for 10 years. I think it was or something like that, close to 10 years. And I had four and a half weeks vacation and there's guys out there who are busting their balls in factories and they're getting like two weeks of vacation. Right. So right. that sucks, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. Right. 
Yeah, our company's our company's crazy. I mean, they're it's a really good company to work for. It's small, it's private. Um, they start guys off at three weeks. Oh wow. So, yeah, so it's it's kind of rare. And then yeah, it's to to get five weeks of vacation. I think you get it after eight years. But to get that many weeks of vacation is kind of these days unheard of. Yeah. Uh, amongst my group of friends, I'm the only one that gets that many weeks. Right. Which so. is crazy because, you know, I don't know about your parents, but my dad worked for the same company for 20 years. My wife's parents uh, worked for the same company their entire life. And so, and my mom, she bounced around a little bit, but... I think the average career change now is like five or something. So in, in that time frame, people are changing younger. The younger generations are changing, which is just, you don't get to accumulate that much anyway, because yep. typically yep. when you transfer the pay may transfer over, but the vacation doesn't really transfer over. Right. So, and that was one big thing with my uh, stepdad. He'd worked for the same company for close to, th uh, 20 some years and then he got a new job and he was back down to two weeks vacation and he had like six at the other place because he'd been working there so long which again is what it is so yeah i'm i'm big on time off i'm yeah. uh i'm the kind of the well, titles project manager so i'm kind of in charge uh of a crew of uh four guys and i am all about everyone taking time off. Oh, yeah. we, we got a we got a safety memo a couple months ago, and it was about taking vacation, and how there was I think there was six hundred million hours of unclaimed oh yeah Dude. paid time off last year in the United and, States, right? Yep, and that is the only to this day that is the only safety memo I've ever printed <laughs> off and taxed to the board and said you take your vacation, like. So. I remember when I was working in that cubicle, the people were talking, you know, oh, dude, I, uh, <laughs> I got, I got like 80 hours of vacation. I didn't use this year. It's carrying over. I'm like, what are you going to do with it? Probably nothing. I'm like, you're the biggest dumbass I've ever met. Like me, yeah. I'm riding, I'm riding right on that 30 minute mark or every single year where it's like, okay, I dedicate a couple sick days to the family when I need to. Um, I dedicate some time to the family for vacations. And then I have down to the wire every hour throughout a year scheduled. And I use every hour of it. And, uh, you know, there's been years in the past where uh, I've gone into the red but luckily at that point I was able to work from home. So sick days really didn't count as sick days anymore. Sick days, yep. sick days were shit. I got a buck on trail camera. I'm going to call in sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm lucky. I don't, I don't have to really call in sick. I kind of just say, yeah, I'm probably not going to be here tomorrow or um, I'm not going to come until noon or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. Every, uh, everybody wishes they had that job. It's a uh, dude. Uh, I don't, I mean, obviously being a wastewater operator is not, you know, the greatest job in the world. Um, it's, it's, it's surprisingly cleaner than what you think. Um, uh, just you're sampling effluent water, which is actually pretty clean water. Uh, that's the majority of what you do, but, um, the, the perks of the scheduling, I mean, I'm hourly. So as long as I get 40 hours a week in, I can kind of mimic my, or not mimic, I can kind of, uh, make up my own schedule and yeah. then, yeah, the, the time off is just, yeah, it's great. So every time I complain about work, my wife just tells me to stop because 
uh, the perks are out far outweigh the uh, the cons. Yeah. So. All right. So today, and we're going to get to the main topic here in a second, but I got one more kind of current event that I want to uh, chit chat about. But we're going to be talking about strategy changes that we've implemented over, you know, the course of our hunting careers, let's say, that have got us into better position to kill deer. Not necessarily big bucks, not necessarily to uh, fill the freezer, but just moves that we've made or adjustments that we've made in the in the past that have kind of led us to be more successful or to have more opportunities. Okay. You down with that? I am. Okay. So I don't know. Do you know anything about the law anywhere? And not not necessarily about wild game violation laws or any type of like, but do you know anything about law at all? Um, No. The only law, I took criminology in um, my freshman year of college and all that did was let me know that when I got busted at a party, I actually didn't have to let the cops in. <laughs> I lost. They need a warrant. <laughs> they need a warrant. Shit, that wasn't the case where I went to school, man. Cops were, let me in the damn door. And they all they all knew us anyway. So it was like, right. is my daughter here? Well, yeah. sh- shut this party down and go away. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's the only law I need. I okay. So. so there's, I don't want to say any names yet because at this point, and again, I don't know anything about the law, but I've been following this guy uh, pretty closely. He's been um, accused and uh, he is in the process of being tried, right? So he's had two dates so far and it was last month was an official court date for um, he... I, I, there's two cases or there's two, uh, things against him. One is, uh, shooting a deer and not taking the meat off of it. And I think the other one was potentially not tagging it. So I, uh, have been following this case and it got pushed back to earlier this week. And then it got pushed back again to, uh, next month into July. And to me, if someone says they are innocent of a crime, wouldn't you want to just get the case out of the way and just say, dude, I didn't do anything with it. Yep. If I'm being tried, let's take it to court and uh, the evidence will prove me innocent. Yeah, it, I mean, absolutely. I don't I, I don't know if the guy's guilty or not, but I don't. I mean, you get a guilty plea or an innocent plea. That's all you get, right? Right. So I, I don't think he's he's even gotten that far. They've been they've asked for a continuance, and every continuance they've asked for so far has been one month out. So mm-hmm. here's the story: this guy shoots a deer, he takes a picture of it, and he uh, promotes it on his social media account, and then he leaves the deer in the woods and doesn't come back to get it. So. I guess that uh, there was a DNR officer who got some intel from somebody who said this has happened. He goes and does a stakeout on this deer, this deer carcass that they found, and waits there and waits for the guy to return, waits for the guy to return, and he never returns to come collect the deer. So they charge him with this crime, and and he hasn't been 
like he just now has done these continuances right and the, so he's gone on social media and he said or he puts out a press release and he says i have not uh, committed a crime you know i i've i've given my life to the whitetail and blah 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 whatever and then his court case is you know, continuance, continuance. So they push it back a month and they push it back a month, which kind of shows me that dude, if you're innocent, you know, put in, put in the innocent charge. But this dude is a big timer. uh, What I would call a big timer in the hunting industry. He's got television, television shows. He's got big time sponsors. And uh, I just want, I want to see where this goes because if this dude is found guilty, I want him to, Dude, I, I want him to, I want him, I, I want almost the, the judge to throw a book at him because rumor has it that he's been in some hot water before for wild game violations and he ended up throwing somebody else under the bus. That's hearsay, but you know how, how that kind of goes. It's uh, right. most of the time it's true. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, it sounds shady. Like you said, if he's innocent, uh, why would you do the continuance? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like, I don't know. If a DNR is going to charge you with something like that, I don't know. It just seems like you're probably guilty. Yeah. I mean, what, it's, I, I've been hunting for 13, 14 years. I don't know. Besides not tagging an animal right away, I mean, dragging it to my car and then tagging it. Besides that, I can't think of ever doing anything illegal. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, I just don't know why you would. Yeah. Man, I, and these days, especially in, in my shoes, like, I get nervous even hunting around a cattle field or cattle pasture because they have salt licks in them. Which if it is, if the salt lake is put there for cattle, I don't have anything to worry about. Right. Uh, it's a farming operation and I can hunt, I can hunt as close to that as I want, but I don't like, I make all these decisions now, especially for me. And it should be the same way for any person who is putting their content out, whether you are trying to be, uh, you know, in the industry or not trying to be in the industry, I, I think that you need to, if you're going to put out a message, you need to put out the most positive and ethical message possible. And, and it's almost like this dude is talking out one side of his mouth and then his actions are, are, are showing something different because he's feeling the pressure to be successful and shoot big bucks. And I think this, I think this, this deer was like in the one sixties and he just, even, and he even just let it lay. I don't think so. That's just that's bizarre. Yeah. That 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 whole part of it is bizarre. It would make more sense if he just cut the antlers off or cut the head off. Yeah. And was and was lazy and didn't take the meat, which is all of it's unacceptable. But yeah. that that would make more sense as far as a you know a poaching charge to to shoot a stud buck and then not do anything with it. Like, well, that just why, that just why tells me why are you hunting? Yeah. Bob, have you ever seen a 160 class uh, deer in Michigan? Uh, one, one, one time. Okay. Have yeah. you have you ever killed a 160 inch deer in Michigan? No. Okay. So when you hear of somebody shooting a deer of that caliber 
and not giving a shit about it and potentially, you know, again, he's not been, this dude has not been found guilty. He's not been, um, you know, he hasn't said in court anyway, in social media, he's said he's innocent in the courts. He hasn't, you know, plead out yet, right? He hasn't said I'm guilty or I'm innocent, but if this is the case and this guy, does this guy seem relatable to you? Uh, if he is shooting a deer of that caliber and just letting it lay only to take pictures with it for his social media? No, no, he's not. He's not relatable to probably to 100% of the hunting industry. Hunting community, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Hunting community. Yeah. Yeah. Hunters. Hunters. Yeah. Yes. And dude, I've, I have, I have never killed a deer in the 160 class. I have never, um, I, I, I think I may have passed one 160 inch class deer, but it's because I was on another deer, but like that right there to me is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest form of representation of our community that there is. And if he, this dude's found guilty, like I feel like it's my duty to tell him to walk away. And say, like, dude, you are not a good representation of this community. Please pack your bags and get the hell out. I totally agree. I, I, I would hope that his hunting privileges would be stripped away from, from him, not just in that state, but yeah. across the entire United States. Yeah. So yeah. I, it's probably a state offense or whatever. So he would only lose privileges in that state, I would I think. Yeah. Again, I don't know the law, but yeah, he should just... He should never hunt again. He's obviously he's not hunting for the right reason. He's not hunting to. to he's hunt. killing. He's killing something to take a picture with it. He's yeah. He's murdering for money. Yeah, that's so. Ugh. Anyway, all right. So once again, we've kind of went off the deep end <laughs> in, on our intros. Uh, on our intro, but now I do want to get into uh, the, the the topic at, at hand today, and that is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about strategy changes that we've implemented over the years that have led us to be, to be, I guess what we would call more successful. And I, and when I say successful, I don't say that that ends in a deer being killed. I'm saying for me, success on a strategy change, uh, change means me being more, um, having more encounters and having more deer within shooting range. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. What, um, so I, I'm just going to kick it off to you and let's do like maybe a back and forth one at a time type thing okay. where you talk about maybe something that you've changed. Now it can be strategy. Uh, me and you, we talk a lot about gear on the hunting gear podcast, but if it maybe it, it's a, a gear thing that's helped you, you know, add that in as well, but uh, I'm going to pass the ball to you. All right. I'm going to start off with, uh, something that happened to me when probably 2012, and this is kind of a bland answer and it's not that great, but I, I don't think podcasts are really out yet, but it was, I started reading books that were written by hunters that were hunting in the areas that I was hunting in. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't educating myself on Midwest whitetail strategy when I was hunting in northern michigan yes you know what i mean yes those that the what the food plots and the ag fields and the draws and the age structure and everything that 
Midwest whitetail authors talk about has zero to do with what happens in northern Michigan on public land. Yeah. So that was that was the first step I took was educating myself um, by authors that hunt that that cut their teeth in my type of area. Yeah. So that was that was the biggest one for that was a, that was a, that was the the starting point for everything for me. Yeah, dude, that's a great answer, and I think that that's a a, a big one because I think that all too often. Right. Especially, especially, I don't want to say today as much as it was back in the day when the outdoor channel was the center of the, the media world, right? The, you know, every, the Drury's, the Lakoski's, you know, you name, you name it. It is a highly managed farm in the Midwest that has hundreds of acres of food plots, a great uh, structure and very low pressure. Right. So I think right. when anybody new coming into media started, you know, or uh, coming in and, uh, you know, started hunting or maybe they've already been hunting, but they were looking for new tactics to get bigger bucks let's just say they were looking at what the one percent was doing and they thought that any of those you know hey maybe if i try this or listening to somebody give advice that hunts in that one percent right so if a one percenter says hey if you do this during the rut then this will happen well if you're sitting in a box blind over a hundred acre food plot with a, a muzzle loader late season in Iowa, you and you live in Michigan. And you can tell me, Bob, is that relatable to you at all? No. Yeah. No, it's not. So, so I think what you said there is spot on, and I think a lot of a lot of people need to do more of that. To be honest with you. Yeah, it's it, well, and then to to even bring it once apart, it's um, I don't want to say I me. Mean, it's curbing your expectations. There's. There's another thing that I realized along that time. I was 2012 was probably my fourth or fifth year of hunting, and I realized who who I was as a hunter. Right. I wasn't new. I had a couple deer under my belt, but I wasn't ready to. I mean, I wanted to shoot your 140s and 150s and 160s and stuff like that. Um, I knew they weren't around because I started running trail cameras and stuff like that, but. Um, the what I, I realized that I was in just get a bunch of kills under your belt stage. Right. Like it's, you know, how it, they they from what I hear from experienced older hunters is you go to from new to just kill everything to start challenging yourself to start killing older bucks. And then after that, it's kind of like uh, you target that one specific buck that's you know, the monarch and you have a couple years trying to do that and you eat your tag a couple of times. Then once you do that, it seems like you have kids and now your life's all about, you know, yes. Helping your kids get their, their first kill under their belt. Yeah. So that's a great point. That's a, another great, look at you, Bob, with all these great points today. Thank I, you. I didn't even know. Yeah, that's, no that's good because I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, we had a guy, I talked to a guy, I wasn't on the podcast, it was at the Iowa Deer Classic a couple years ago, and he goes, he goes, man, when I first started hunting, we shot everything. If it was brown, it was down. And then I wanted to shoot uh, antlers, right? And I shot 
I only, I was passing does so I could shoot a, uh, you know, a hundred inch deer. And then, you know, over the years I started learning more about deer movement and I, uh, I, I saw bigger bucks and I wanted to shoot bigger bucks. So I would pass the, the hundred inchers and then I would go for the one twenties, then the one thirties. And I stair-stepped and stair-stepped all the way up. This guy's got like probably 10 Boone and Crockett deer on his wall, right? Over the years. And he goes, then I started, uh, targeting specific bucks, which were the booners, right? That, that uh, I mentioned. And he goes, now, dude, all I care about is getting my kids on deer and getting my grandkids on deer. I, I, the dude didn't even talk like he, he picked up a weapon this year. He was with his kids and he was with his grandkids and that's all that he cared about anymore. So, uh, I think, uh, the stages of what stages you are, uh, also should be on the, the content. Right. And I, I tell you what, and I, I'll just echo what you said. I went, when I started bow hunting, I went straight from in 2006, when I got serious about it, I went straight from not shooting any deer to passing bucks to try to shoot, you know, a higher caliber. And one thing that I went through was not having you know that that uh, saying when people win a championship or they win a prize or some act like you've been there and don't go mm-hmm. bananas. Well, yeah. I had never been there before. So <laughs> when a big when a big buck stepped out, I lost my shit. And a lot of times, I put myself in the wrong position. Maybe I made noise and I got busted, or I missed, or I put a bad shot. Right. And if I would have stair stepped up and started with shooting does and starting with shooting younger deer that were right in front of me i i feel like i personally would have felt more comfortable around deer in general and would eventually put better shots on deer yeah so yeah i i can relate to that yeah yeah for sure cool so all right give us a actual strategy like an actual hunting strategy (laughs) okay all right all right so for me the biggest one that I, and this is, this is hard because this is, this is me talking about my scenario and this specific strategy may not, you know, be good for you because you hunt big woods or a guy in Nebraska because he hunts pretty much or, or Kansas, they hunt all fence line and crick bottoms or, or there's not a lot of, uh, trees in in an area or out west where or out east where the parcels are smaller and they have limited access or whatever but for me the biggest the biggest move that i made and it was in a way what you said about knowing where you're at and what scenario you're in was when i stopped hunting and i don't want to say stopped altogether but when i hunted field edges a lot less and i came in the timber probably you know it depended on the scenario but 100 yards 80 yards off the field edge and started hunting trails leading up to staging areas and trails um, coming out of, of bedrooms i had more encounter with deer during daylight hours on evening hunts to the point where i was like oh my god it was almost like an aha moment for me to the point now where I very rarely hunt field edges, especially in the early season, because all that sign that you're seeing along those field edges is made at night. Right. Right. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. It's so one thing. Yeah, I food plots and field edges are not really something that I um I really hunt over for with intentions of shooting a mature buck. Right. Right. So for me, when I made when I made that decision, right, and it and it took it took like a year for me to get it through my head to say, because number one, walking up to a field edge and putting a, a tree stand in a tree or hunting out of a ladder stand is easy is easier to do than going back in the timber into a tree where you may have to trim some branches. You got to set it up and you might have to move it. You might have to take it down. So it's, it's a little bit of a combination of moving off the field edge, but also, um, you know, throw in being mobile to that as well, where I just moved my tree stand. And back then I had ladder stands too. So I was even moving my ladder stands into the timber further back and finding those staging areas where, I would have time once I saw the deer to try and shoot them where if I'm hunting a field edge, especially early season, right? The, the deer are, they're coming out right at last light or even the rut, right? And and this, again, this is my experience, my scenario where if I'm hunting a field edge in the morning or an afternoon, I'm only hunting, you know, the first 30 minutes or an hour after daylight, or before daylight or, you know, before the sun goes down and then after the sun comes up, because as we all know, unless you're on one of those highly managed farms, deer just aren't hanging out in bean fields all day long, even during the rut. Right. So moving into the timber, finding those pinch points, just, man, it, it woke me up and it made me realize that there's, there's more opportunity to, to connect on a deer. And I think that that goes, that can go from the big buck standpoint and it can go for fill your freezer, right? If you want to, yeah. if your goal is to fill your freezer, I think that strategy would, will help you as well. So, yeah. So that's, that is the biggest strategy change that I've implemented over the years that, that has allowed me to get closer and have more opportunities. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. So what about you? You got another one? Yeah, I'll kind of go with deer movement, just kind of like you did. So one thing I have noticed over probably the past five, six years is that um, if you are hunting a field, uh, I've just seen a lot of movement, seen more movement where if you have a field and there's a trough, there's a trough or a valley through, there's a low spot that goes through it. Um, Say you have a field that runs north and south and there's a low spot that runs east and west deer will move through that trough more than they'll move through any other part of it absolutely so it, it doesn't matter if it's a, a ag field um or like a, a brushy you know freshly um logged field stuff like that uh both scenarios like that i just see that they they move through the low spots better yeah so yeah dude i tell you what andy may uh, you've heard about him. You've uh, he's been on the Nine Finger Chronicles yeah. recently, even, and uh, or the Sportsman's Nation recently. And I'm telling you what, that dude, when he does the scouting, that's what he looks for. Uh, one of the Great. big things that he looks for is low spots in fields where they're coming in uh, into the field where they're not skylined, and uh, he's yeah. been he's been successful doing that. So, uh, and the cool thing about that is, they if you ever drive on a piece of property 
I've had trail cameras uh, on a big field that you should be able to see all the way back to the back fence line, but you don't see the deer there. And what are they doing? They're taking that low spot, that trough to cut across, and you can't see it from, if you are in the tree stand, you can see it, see them. But if you're from the road, you can't see them. So they know how to use terrain, man. That is their biggest strength. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I listened to that podcast with Andy May, and when he said that, I was like, I do know something about whitetails. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> it's Don't like, you hate it when, when there's guys out there who are so good at killing deer that it almost makes you embarrassed? Uh, yeah, dude. I mean, I I – I understand exactly why Andy May is as good as he is. There's a couple other guys like him too. They, yeah. before they were married and kids and stuff like that, they just every. It, I mean, it sounds like four or five days a week, fifty-two weeks out of the year, he did something in the whitetail woods to, for years on end, to yeah. become a better hunter. Right. Yeah. So, right. absolutely, I mean, man. It, it makes sense. I used to fish like that, and. uh <laughs> That's why steelhead fishing has always been, I, I feel fi- steelhead fishing has been kind of a little easier for me than um, some guys that have only been doing it for a couple of years. So yeah, just um, exp- that experience, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So, so the next uh, strategy that I guess I, and I hate to say it because I am an advocate for hunting. And what I mean by that is if you have the opportunity to go out and hunt i feel like you should go out and hunt because hunting is my favorite thing and i had this realization where man i uh, i can remember one year i got laid off from a job and they were downsizing it was during that auto crisis right so they were uh, an aftermarket manufacturer and i got laid off because business just wasn't doing well and that year I hunted so much like I would look for my jobs. I'd collect my unemployment. I was helping my buddy. Um, he was paying me cash for, uh, some landscaping that he was doing. And then every day I went hunting and I had a little bit and I'm, I'm kind of lucky because at that time I had a ton of ground, like thousands upon thousands of acres in Iowa to where I could go into a spot, hunt it, go into another spot, hunt it, and just hunt in rotation every single day until I started running trail cameras. And then I identified, you know, you identify a big buck and you go and you hunt that buck and it's like October 7th, right? And you go into the same place like five, six days in a row and you wonder, dude, why haven't you why hasn't this buck showed up yet? Well, the, well, duh, dumbass. He knows you're there. He's, right. he knows you're, you're there five days in a row. Do you think he's going to come out in daylight? No, he's not right. He's got right. you pegged. He knows what mm-hmm. you're doing. So the strategy of, of this part is the trail camera data. When I would get a, a picture of a buck, I used to get excited and I used to instantly jump into the timber and want to go hunt that buck. But if that trail camera picture was at 2.30 in the morning, 3.30, 1, whatever, an hour after daylight to an hour before daylight, if it was in that window, I almost treat that trail camera picture as just a picture. There's no, like, 
I can't make a move on that buck until he starts getting closer to daylight. So I, I learn my patience, right? And I learn not to, not to go in and hunt in a scenario like that, because just like I'm sure you've been there before, you got a deer, he busts you and then he goes bye-bye for a little bit. He's not coming back to that same area. You got to find him all over again. Right. Right. So I guess it's a little bit, a little bit patience. That strategy is if you're, if you're trying to ident or target a specific deer, uh, or, uh, a group of deer and they're, they're straight nocturnal. I mean, not even close to daylight Then you should probably hold off and, and just wait and yeah. give it time. And because eventually if you, if you don't pressure that deer, He's going to get closer to daylight. He's going to get closer to daylight. And then let's say he's an hour out of daylight. Let's say sunrise is, is at six and he's at five or let's on the opposite side. Let's go. He's there at six and sun's going down at five. Cold front comes through. Then you get in the tree and then you hope that that cold front helps push him out uh, a little bit a little bit better better but another thing that i've learned is that's not always the case dude time of year has more to do with deer movement in my opinion than weather patterns oh uh, yeah i i agree with you on that one yeah absolutely so yep. so yeah um i guess my my i don't even know really what that strategy is other than um pay, pay, i would say patience and analyzing data yeah there you go yep yeah. okay there you go so and I'll, I'll piggyback off that one too so uh, when you start talking about you know a, a target buck showing up at three in the morning four in the morning that from from all the information i've digested from guys that know a ton more than me that is supposed to indicate that that deer is not living near your property that you're hunting right he is he is been on his feet and that's why he's in he's on the neighbor's pro he's living on the neighbor's property and he's not getting over to you until middle of the night right so um and the other thing so that's that's one thing so time is definitely something to look at when you, you're getting pictures of a mature buck um the other thing i started picking up on was the say it gets a light out and this is more for like early season so say you know first couple weeks of october and you can even find this pattern starting in late September. But um, say it gets light out at 6 a.m. And you're getting pictures of deer, uh, of, of a, a target buck on a, on a food source or something like that at 5.30 in the morning. That means that you don't really want to hunt that area in the morning because you're most likely going to bump him in the dark. You're actually not going to see him. Yeah. So that, that's another time. I mean, I think... A lot of guys have covered that. I've, I've talked about not hunting in the morning in October. Um, it's kind of gained some popularity. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely one that, that I've picked up on. And uh, I think there are times. There's definitely times to hunt. Oh, yeah. If you, if you get a big cold front in on October 10th, yeah, definitely. Hunt the morning. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just something to don't push in there. Be patient. Analyze your trail camera data. Yeah. It's a uh, a good strategy yeah I, and i think on the law of averages you're right and i would agree with you on the law of averages however i 
if I have data, trail camera picture data, that indicates that there is a deer working his way back to a, let's just say, a, a, a typical bedding area, whether that is a CRP field in a wide open state, or it is a, you know, it's from food back to bed, right? Let's take terrain out of it, take vegetation out of it. If it's from food going back to bed, depending on the data that you have and the access routes that you take to get to your ambush point, dude, I think any time of year morning hunts can be good if you know that you're going to have shooting light back to the you know back you know when the deer are heading back to the bedroom but just like time of year again november deer are going to be on their feet more right a buck is going to be on his feet almost all day during the rut you know certain times of the rut right late october they're going to they're going to get out of their beds early they're going to go back to their beds late because they're laying down sign but to to take morning hunt out of it altogether i think it might be a bad idea for some people um, like if you have the data, go make the move, dude. You can learn something. Right. Even if you fail, you can learn something. Right. So I don't know. I, I just and, hate, I hate blanket statements. Yeah, no. And I, and I didn't mean to make one. I just, no, no, like, I, 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 right. I get it. So it was in, in, on, on top of what you're saying. If you say you do blow an opportunity on a, a October 15th morning, you still have many weeks of the season left for that buck to settle down and and get back to his pattern and, and maybe get a chance at him right during the rut something like that so, right absolutely um, because they they'll get dumb at some point right yeah oh yeah uh, so real quick another another i don't know if you call this a strategy or a, a pattern but there's something that i noticed in the midwest um it seems as though during the rut if you have like during that November 3rd, 4th, 5th, and on. If you see a buck, a lot of times I'll see a buck one day. And then all of a sudden, when he disappears and I don't see him again for two or three days, I'm starting to think that he's locked down with a doe. And it seems like, and this is more so later in November that I found this. This is more like November 10th and on, which is really that breeding time. It's like, if you have a big buck encounter... You then don't see him for three days, and then on that fourth or fifth day, you're going to see him again because he's back on the hunt for a hot doe. Yeah. So I kind of started – I remember two years ago in Iowa, I, I figured that out towards the end of my, like, 10-day hunt there. And I started thinking back, like, all right, day five, I, I saw this buck in this area, and I didn't see him again. And day six – so I started planning out my last couple of days of the hunting, like, where I was going to hunt by what encounters I had four days previous to that. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I did a good way of explaining that. Yeah. So, so I'll, let me try to explain it in, with my experience this year specifically. And I talked about Andy may with this. I think I was too mobile. I think that I moved around too much and I didn't give uh, uh, if a deer was on a day or two routine or a three day routine or hell, whatever, however many days routine, what I was doing this year was pop in, nothing happening, move, pop in, nothing happening, move, pop in and just continue to bounce and bounce and not get 
a feel for like a routine, right? To, to where right. that could happen. I know it's a good spot. I know I have edge. I know I have a bedding area. I know I have a pinch point, whatever, right? There's a food source up here. It's a whatever. I feel like I was, I was going to those spots and I was just, I, I would say, okay, this is where the big buck is, or, you know, this is where my target animals are going to come through. I would give them one hunt, maybe a, a, an afternoon and a morning or a morning and afternoon. And then, and then I would leave and not come back to that for like four or five days where I feel like I should have probably given that specific spot more time where I should have maybe hunted it a morning an afternoon, a morning an afternoon or, you know, afternoon, morning, afternoon, morning, and give that, give that spot some more time for the deer to cycle through because, you know, unlike other places in the United States, especially where I hunt, where it's these, it's, it's like big woods and farm land collide right and the deer there they bed in different areas every single day depending on the wind direction they don't have a specific bedding area for every wind or they have you know like a lot of people say you hear you hear people talk about beds and then you hear people talk about the marshes well the 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 reason that these beds are so predominant is because it's the only high ground in the area and that's where they have to bed where where I'm at, there's so much cover and so much ground. These guys have endless bedding opportunities. And yeah, a buck might go to um, high, I guess, high security beds every so often. Uh, to, you know, those are his main bedding areas. But it's not one bedding area. It's not, it's like if he's here, if he's on a north wind, he's going to be here. If he's on a south wind, he's going to be here. They just bed all over the place. So... It's hard, like I feel it's harder to to locate a buck where I'm at because of all the different bedding areas, which makes that is why I bump around. And at that point, I'm I'm relying on chance as opposed to like I guess statistics trying to run yeah. into them, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, uh, I, I could see where you're coming from on that. I mean that's got that's basically a product of having a lot of acreage to hunt i'm going to assume yeah i mean it's 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 way down from what i i used to have i mean hell i just lost uh, a a farm this spring so it just keeps going you know keeps going away but uh yeah i'm lucky i have a lot of acres to hunt but i you know i'm only jumping into those areas where trail camera data is telling me that there that's where the deer are at you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. I think learning from failure obviously is a big one, but, but giving a space or giving an area time to, to show what it is and maybe not jumping in or maybe, maybe not going in and then coming out and saying, up, oh, there's nothing here because the next day, as we all know, it could be on fire and yep. you, you would never know. So what do you, no, that, in your opinion and talk about what you know in northern Michigan do you feel that deer are on like big cycles where 
you know, that they go here for a day, then they go there for a day, or is it more of a, a stricter uh, pattern? I think for the first two and a half, three weeks of October, they're on a pretty good pattern, pretty strict pattern. Uh, the only thing I've noticed that throws it off uh, would be uh, the acorn crop. Uh, because I don't, in Northern Michigan, there's not a lot of ag, right? right. There's no, there's, there's really no beans. And there's just, it's, if someone does have um, a crop, it's just corn. So, um, and that's not, there's not a lot of that around. It's, it's, it's a lot of public land and then really small private parcels. Um, so yeah, the, the, and with that, uh, a strategy I have learned with the acorns is, um, a windy day. You either want to hunt during a windy day in early October or the day after, because you're going to have a lot more fresh acorns that just dropped or even after a rain huh. during a rain, that's going to help drop those acorns. Yeah. And I, and I know a lot dropped before October, but, um, it's just one thing that I've keyed in on. Yeah. So I've I've heard guys talk about the maple leaf drop, how there's like they can be sweet for like the first I don't know 24 hours that they're on the ground, and deer will key in on on maple leaves that have just fallen. But I've never, me personally, I've never experienced that. Yeah, I've I've definitely so. heard guys talk about that. Um, here's a here's a a quick statistic, and I think it's from like zero to ten mile an hour deer move normally. And then after that, it's kind of like this bell curve to where it's just a big curve where uh, the higher the wind speed, the deer movement kind of slows down. But then when it gets to a like a 25 mile an hour mark and higher, it actually increases deer movement. So uh, there there's times where if it's moderately windy, deer tend to move less. But if it's extremely windy deer get on their feet and are on their feet more hours of a day yeah so uh that's a god where did i hear that statistic from um maybe pennsylvania or some guy from pennsylvania i'll have to i'll have to go back and dig on it but that's a that's a real that's a real stat yeah i was gonna say that sounds like a uh, like a collared deer stat yeah oh yeah Yeah. or study yep so uh let's see here any other any other big things like i'll just i'll I'll go here with it the you know i already mentioned the the being mobile thing but what i will say is before i bought a lone wolf tree stand and this is going to you know sound you know sound like i'm giving lone wolf the reach around but in a way i am it is it as far as equipment is concerned um it is one of the biggest equipment changes that I have, that I made that led to me being, uh, which, you know, led to me being mobile, which led to me being, being more successful through encounters and going back to what is successful, successful is more encounters in shooting range. So as far as a piece of equipment, a piece of gear that has allowed me to, uh, just have more encounters, it's definitely, uh, the lone wolf tree stand because before that, before I bought my first, first lone wolf, I was using these Farm King hang-ons, like these $60 hang-ons where if the tree was crooked, you were crooked because you couldn't sit 
I mean, it was, you had to have a chain or you had to have a ratchet strap or it was loud, all metal, no seat. You know what I mean? Uh, just yep. not. And I, I even thought going from a ladder stand to screw on steps and a hang on was awesome. But then I bought, I bought my first lone wolf and I was like, oh shit, dude, this things are going to get interesting from here. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of had, I kind of had the same progression. Yeah. yeah I went from ladder stands and then i went from like oh i can do screw in steps and a hang on and be up in 20 minutes and yeah. then yeah finally bought a lone wolf and the and the climbing sticks and i was like oh my gosh right this is so simple right so and you can just get in any tree any tree so, yep yeah. yep so um let's see any other any other uh strategy or gear changes that uh, have led to you being more more uh successful yeah, I'd say something that's led to an impact of just seeing more deer is it's it's twofold. It is spring scouting and then how that translates into access to tree stands. Ah, yes, good point. Because because this and it, I haven't part of what I'm talking about, I haven't even been able to apply yet because I just realized it this year, but I did some spring scouting and and it's a it's called Leelanau County. It's up in like it's like this little peninsula up in northern Michigan, even further north to where I live. And um they've had an APR up there for like I don't know, like seven or eight years, something like that. They're the first county in Michigan to have a antler point restriction. Um and so there's there's quality deer up there and I've got a hundred acre farm I can hunt up there. Um and I never see deer. I've never I've seen one buck on that property in five years. Uh, I've never, and it wasn't anywhere close to me. Um, like one mature buck I've seen, you know, seen forks and dinks and stuff like you can't shoot them though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time up there this, this spring trying to figure out what's going on. And I just realized that deer can pretty much see me anytime I'm walking into a tree stand. So I got permission from the neighbor on the opposite side of the farm and I now have permission to access that farm from the backside and a lot of my access should be completely stealth, um, should not be seen at all. And, um, I'm going to put that, I'm going to apply that this year and, and let's see, I'm just hoping that it, it pays off because of all the properties I hunt in Northern Michigan, that one always has the biggest bucks on it and I never see them. Yeah. And it is infuriating. Yeah. It ma it makes you want to it makes you want to get off your ass and go do something, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah. Uh yeah. that I'll I'll be honest with you. What I said earlier about the biggest the biggest um thing was getting off the field edges and going into the into the woods more. Uh that didn't just happen like, "Oh, I'm going to walk down a trail and and uh just set up here." and not think about access, right? Uh, access was very important in that decision-making as well. So I'm telling you right now, I, I did my spring scouting a um, couple, was it last week? I cut a big track um, and, I, and there's going to be a video that's coming out here shortly of that little adventure that I did on, on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. But uh, I went onto a piece of public, I did some scouting found a ton of great sign and if i just went in there willy-nilly i would have probably blown a ton of deer out of there but 
you know, learning to access, you know, finding the good locations through scouting and then learning to access them on specific wins that not only on the scouting mission that I did, but on my other farms, it's like, it's this big combination of all these little things that, you know, over time you're refining your strategy to just be better and better and better. And access was a another huge, huge, like, dude, you might have to J hook in. You might have to walk uh, another mile down the, down the field and then loop back in. You may have to go straight this way and walk through a briar patch. You may have to, you know, get muddy and cross a creek or whatever, right? It's these access route because deer don't care, right? You right. have to, you have to try to beat their senses yep. and having an access route is one big step towards that. Very much so. Yeah. And Very I hope, so. I hope I don't come off like I'm preaching, right? Like you need to do this because, you know, quite frankly, you don't need to do anything, but I'm using these as examples of things that have led to me being uh, more successful. And, you know, it's almost a compliment. It's like moving off the field edge is complemented by learning how to access a tree stand properly. And that has led to more encounters. Yeah. No, you don't sound like you're preaching. You sound like you're uh, trying to help people get on bigger deer. Hey, man, look out for the Nine Finger Chronicles book coming soon. That was a joke. I was going to say, is that real? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not smart enough to write a book. It would just be pictures. Yeah, chapter one, see chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, buddy. Uh, but I, but I, I do joke about writing a, a children's book sometime, like a, a children's book. That's just like Billy hops in the tree stand with his dad. A buck comes out. Billy shoots the deer and like, and then it's just all, but it would have a little sick twist to it. I don't know. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> uh, so access, access routes, keep that, keep that sick twist for off air, man. Right. So. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so, um, there's that, uh, that strategy, anything else? No, I mean, I was trying to think about like a, like a gear strategy, but I don't, you know, if it wasn't for my Matthews bow, my sick of gear, my lone wolf tree stands and my rage broadheads and <laughs> my carbon express arrows, I would never shoot a deer. I would have so, never. That is the never. only combination that kills deer. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I don't think gear really matters that much. Just be accurate with your bow and yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, the next time uh, we have a conversation, uh, to be to be uh, honest with you, one of the biggest questions the the questions that I get answer asked a lot are shot placement questions like where should I shoot a deer? To mm -hmm. be honest with you, it's not necessarily strategy related. It is where should I shoot a deer? Man, I've shot deer. This is going to sound bad, but I've had bad shots. I mean, it's uh, it's a reality of bow hunting, but. I've had him go through the butt and kill the deer. Uh, in 2012, I shot a deer through the, uh, he was looking up at me and he loaded, you know, they dropped down to take off right as I released the arrow, he dropped and spun his head around. I shot him through the nostril and the arrow went down his, down his throat. I'm not happy with that shot, but Holy wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Went down his nostril, uh, 
down his throat and one blade caught hit like all like the jugular and he was done in 60 yards. Wow. Yeah, it was the it was probably one of the fastest kills that I've ever I've ever had. But when it comes to you know, while we're on the topic, we might as well talk about it real quick. Um obviously, a broadside shot is the most sought after, right? Uh, a standing still broadside shot where you try to shoot the heart or both lungs and done deal, right? But as you know, just as well as I do, that's not what's always presented to you. And mistakes are made. And I'll be honest with you, this year and in 2017, I did a a one-lung liver combo. And I got shit for saying this. I got shit for saying this. Even on iTunes, people... Guys like this dude's talking about shooting livers, but I have seen a deer die faster from a liver shot than a double lung shot before. You shoot a you shoot a deer in the, in the lungs and they it gives them an opportunity to run, but when you shoot a deer in the liver, oh, bed down they they stop moving. It's yeah. it must be pretty painful for them, right? Yeah. And I don't condone and like. I don't condone shooting, you know, I guess I'm more of a killer than, you know, going after the perfect shot. Like if I have an opportunity to kill a deer and I'm going to get, let's say, backside, backside, frontside liver, backside lung, right? Or frontside liver or frontside lung, backside liver on a hard quartering towards or a hard quartering away shot. Dude, I, right. I, I hate to say it. But I will take that shot. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, if you, you practice, you're accurate. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, that's there's no there's no problems with that. Will I, I take I that shot at 45, 50 yards? Probably not. Right. But if they're 20 yards, I'll take that shot. Oh, yeah. I'll take oh, that yeah. shot all day. Yeah. And especially if you're especially you're, I'm assuming you're probably drawn. 65 70 pounds something like that 70 a, 70 pounds with uh 520 roughly a 510 520 grain arrow and what's your draw length uh 29 yeah i mean that's plenty of energy at 20 yards to to send it yeah so and dude you even even hitting that diaphragm if you hit if you break that diaphragm a deer's gonna die right right um I, i've shot a deer like that this past year, my deer was dead 20 yards from where I shot him. And that was a, he was quartering towards, so I hit front side, front side. He looked like he was broadside, but he was front side lung, backside liver. And okay. he was dead in 20 yards. 2017, uh, front side lung, backside liver. De- I watched him die. He was closer to my stand when he died than he was when I shot him. So, uh, I, I don't know. Have you ever had a, like, are you a heart guy? Where do you try to shoot at a deer? Do you aim at the oh, heart? Or are you a lung guy? I'm a double lunger. Yeah. I will typically aim. Uh, I try to aim, um, just above the heart, but 
Uh, yeah, it seems it seems typically like I always get high double lung. That's yeah. like my my standard, and yeah. I'm sure it's because I don't know. I think people can de- debate this. I don't know the science behind it, but uh, I'm pretty sure when you shoot from above, uh, you you hit higher. Your impact is at a higher point. Yeah. So, um, just because I think gravity's not taken out of the fact, but it, it doesn't affect your aero flight as much. If I, if I understand that correctly. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had some questionable shots. Um, I had, I had a buck come at me head on and he was at 20 yards and I was literally just going to send it right into his, uh, his brisket cause he was at 20 yards and it's kind of just like, he, his head was up looking at me too. Yeah. So it was, it was all exposed. And as I shot, he turned. And so it entered right in between like his neck and his shoulder. And I, my arrow only went halfway into him, but he only went 50, 60 yards. Yeah. So last year was two deer double lunged them both. Um, the first one I actually hit like a little more forward than I would have liked. And, uh, Definitely like went through the upper shoulder and then double lunged him. Um, but yeah, he only went maybe 150 yards. And then the the second buck I shot that was at 20 yards and it was a it was a pass through double lung and yeah, that was like a, it was there was snow on the ground that was just like a, a red carpet. So yeah. Um, but no, I've got a I've got a buddy that every single year for probably the last four or five years he shot a buck right in the ass and it's only gone. 30 or 40 yards he gets hmm. the femoral he gets the femoral artery every time by by luck he gets the artery by luck by luck yeah he shoots he shoots uh vertical pins okay. and i don't know if that's the issue or if it's just an insane amount of buck fever um yeah i know the other thing is like he's very much like this is the only chance i'm gonna get okay so, so. He, he puts a lot of pressure on himself he he does. So okay. he'll 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 send it even like I don't know, I'm not in the hunting, I'm not in the tree with him, but I think he just he gets worked up and sends it and just Yeah. It just ends up being a questionable shot. So he's not that's, the only that's one, he's not the only guy who does that, dude. No, we all do it. Yeah. So I will say I have I mean, last year I shot two bucks, but I also I also um I have, what do you call it? I drew down. I drew down on two bucks as well. I was at full draw and never released an arrow on two bucks as well. Okay. Just because I knew it wasn't right. Um, yeah. I've done that many times. 2018, I think I was at full draw three different times and never released an arrow because it just wasn't right. Yeah. So it's just sometimes you just have to let them live so you can fight another day. Right. Yeah. That's a that's, great point. Yeah. So – on your marginal shots over time, like for me, I, I used to try to stick it right behind the shoulder every single time. I when, I when I first started becoming serious, I would always want to tuck it right in. And there there was a time where I shot a little forward. Even This is on a broadside shot, so I don't know what happened. Maybe it was buck fever. Maybe it was just, you know, rushing the shot, whatever. My arrow hit forward. And I did not recover that deer. So I made, I told myself, hey, if you're going to try to do a double lung, you might as well try to get the backside of the lungs, right? And, and, and move away from that front shoulder. So if you do miss, 
right? If you miss, if you miss high, you're still getting long. If you miss low, you're still getting long. If you miss back, you're getting liver. And if you miss forward, you're still getting long, right? Right. So for me personally, I like to come off the shoulder about four inches ish. Right. Yep. And that's where my, like, I want, I'm not aiming for the heart anymore. I'm aiming for, I'm aiming for a bigger target, which is the lung. And if I miss back, you know, I'm, I'm hitting the liver, which historically for me has been a, a, a bigger, like, I don't know. I hit a mule deer and one lunged him and he ran forever and never found him. And I hit, uh, 2016 when I shot that buck in the liver, dude, he was like, these deer are dead with a liver shot. I even, even a Nick, you know, I hear people talk about, dude, I just nicked his liver. And that was, that was the end of him because they, wow. they bleed. So they bleed so bad and they're in such pain that they don't want to move. And I know that's not like, it's almost like taboo to talk about that kind of thing because everybody wants to preach an ethical kill right we all want we all want to see the deer drop in sight we all want it to not suffer but part of the sport is killing an animal and that animal while it's dying is feeling pain right so i don't know i i don't want to say i'm on a different camp than everybody else but uh i don't know that's just me i guess no, you're fine, and you're not on a different camp for than anyone. I mean, there's I don't know, 10 million hunters in the U.S. or something like that. I yeah. mean, you, for you to think that you're the only one that thinks that way is not, you know, that's not <laughs> true. So, um, I'll, I'll say, I'll say, dude, like I don't, I don't have this conversation with many people, and, and maybe this will get some negative comments, but uh, I, I, I never want a deer to suffer. Nope. Uh, longer than it has to. I do my best to practice and shoot as much as I can. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty accurate shooter, but at the end of the day, well, I do not feel bad. I don't feel bad when a deer dies. I don't feel bad when it's in the process of dying. Um, I don't know why that is. Um, everyone that talks about it being bittersweet or how I hear a lot of guys talk about killing a deer is like one of the hardest things they do. Like when they get to that moment of actually killing a deer being full drawn and sending it like that's one of the hardest decisions um and they almost regret doing it i have none of that yeah it is it is food and it is going in my freezer and i want to kill it and have it die as quickly as possible to make the the drag out and the track job and the recovery all of it yeah as easy as possible yeah absolutely and i i would assume that me killing it with a bow and arrow it is going to have a much quicker death than if it died um, from predators or old age. Yeah. Yeah, man. So that's a, a good point. I tell you, I'll tell you this. Um, I, I'm not going to say I'm on the complete opposite end of you, but when I kill a deer and I'm not saying what, you know, how you feel is right or wrong. Cause it's your, how you feel. But well, from, my feelings, I can never be wrong for my feelings, Dan. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> this is a no, Hey, this is a no judgment podcast, dude. This is a no right. judgment podcast. But for, it. for me, I get, I, I feel remorse. Like I, I feel a little remorse 
when I, when I take an animal's life. Um, and especially a, a white tailed deer, you know, it's this animal that for the most part is in my head every single day. And I, for me, when I shoot it, it's not like, Oh my God, I can't do this. You know, I, I you know, I, I don't feel like that. It's just like, I have a moment and I'm just like, yeah. man, this animal gave its life for me. And that's, right. that's kind of, that's kind of how I, I look at it. But, um, I don't, I, under, I don't mourn it. Right. So I, I understand that. Yeah. And I understand why, why other hunters are remorseful. Yeah. I, I get all of it. I just, for whatever reason, you're a heartless bastard. I guess so, man. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah, I just don't feel bad about it. Yeah. I, some of my buddies do. Some of my buddies don't. It's just kind of, I don't know. And like, and like I was saying, like, I know I'm not the only one in the world that feels that way. I can't be. Yeah. So let me ask you this. When you shoot a buck, do you get shaken up at all and have like, uh, any type of emotion or are you pretty rock solid? Um, I get, I mean, I get a huge kick of adrenaline that I don't know how to handle, but, um, and yeah, but I, I mean, I will, it's been a long time since I've gone like all flamboyant after a kill <laughs> gone loco will. lost your mind yeah yeah, yeah. and dude no doubt about it there might be a day it could be this year there might be a day where i am i get that remorse and yeah. i feel bad and i i have that more of uh you know I, I i don't right now i don't feel like i'm dishonoring a white tail because i'm not a smidge remorseful when i take its life um but i think to experience that emotion would be a good thing for me yeah Uh, i'm just not gonna force it but yeah i've i've got some um the um i've got two kills on film uh from 2019 that i'm i'm putting a video together that will be on the the sportsman's nation youtube channel shameless plug hey (laughs) oh and uh no i've uh I, i was looking at my reaction after the kill and um yeah pretty Pretty chill. Yeah. I say uh, I say that was cool. I say the word cool <laughs> probably 25 times after each one. <laughs> cool. And then, like, That's we, cool, like, dude. Yeah, we track it, and I'm just playing, you know, just playing with the antlers, looking at it, and just cool. It's cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of funny. So, but, uh, yeah. No, it's – so, yeah. Uh, do you get do you get pretty uh, jazzed up after you shoot one? <sighs> it's weird. Right. Like if I have history with a deer, I get jacked. Like I'm like, I got him. I got him. You know, like 2018, the buck I shot found his shed, um, had three years, uh, one, two, two or three years worth of history with him. Right. Never saw him from the stand, but knew he was in the area. Tons of trail camera pictures. He popped out, shot him and I lost it. And I was just like, you know, like the shakes, right? I call the wife and I'm just like, oh, she's like, what's wrong with you? Are, are you okay? I'm like, I got the deer. I got him. Well, you know, like, <laughs> and she's just like, whatever, you know, like, okay, right. okay. But then it took me a day and a half to find him after that. And I, you know, so you go from this, oh, I got him oh, to, oh, you know, shit. Now what? Yeah. I feel like a piece of garbage because I knew where I had, put that arrow that deer is he he's gonna die but i hope he dies right now so then 
that's when my remorse really kicks in. And I'm like, now this deer is suffering because of me when it doesn't necessarily need to be suffering right now. And I felt like shit until I found him dead. And then I, I broke down when, when that happened. And I, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, tearing up and having these emotions where it's like this deer, he gave his, I mean, he, he didn't let me kill him, but I outsmarted him. I killed him and, uh, he suffered and then he died. And that is, that is when I get a little remorseful. If I heart shot him and he dropped dead or, you know, and I, I watched him die and, you know, he was back in the back in the back of the truck within an hour after I shot him probably wouldn't have felt that way. Right. But I do have a, I do have this very, I have a very large amount of respect for these animals because humans cannot do what these do. Right. These guys are sitting in the extreme heat. They're in the, they're in the cold. They, they're literally surviving every day. They'll stay in one spot that stand like a statue for an hour to assess a scenario before they make one step. Right. The the respect I have for these animals is is amazing. And, and then when, when you take their life and it doesn't go as planned, then you're just like, God damn, man, this is just not how I wanted to do it. And that's, that's when my, that's when my emotions kind of kick in. Yeah, and I yeah, I'm right there with you. I do. Uh, I just feel I feel rather disappointed in myself and the decision I made, or yeah. whatever whatever the reason is, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I think the the worst I think I ever felt was last year when um, my buddy shot a buck and we walked up on it, and that deer had obviously died within seconds after he shot it because it only went sixty yards, but the coyotes got to oh, it. Oh yeah, dude. And oh my, I've never seen anything like that. And then on, and then to see like, to see my buddy go through it too. I mean, I was sick to my stomach on that yeah. one. So that yeah. was a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, absolutely. So. Crazy. It's just, it's a crazy, it's a crazy mindset that that hunters kind of have to go through. You have to be accept. I mean, and here's another thing, right? I grew up on a farm. I saw death not every day it wasn't like just chopping heads off chickens and shooting cows but i was there when they chopped the heads off of chickens i was there when my grandpa would you know put a put a cow into a trailer shoot it it dropped down and he'd take it to the uh to the uh processor right the processor wouldn't kill it you had to kill it and so i saw life you know i saw my other grandpa breed horses. I saw cows getting bred and I saw death, the, which that was death for food. Right. So I don't want to say I was desensitized to death because I knew something lost its life, but it was for us. Right. So, um, maybe in a way I was desensitized to it, but I guess I don't have the respect for a cow that I do for a deer. You know, a cow is literally being bred to be consumed. A deer is is not being bred. It is a wild, natural creature that we are going into its world to try to kill. Right. So it makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So I can uh, I can see how 
let's say a non-hunter would look at that and just think it's gruesome, right? I don't want to say I sympathize with them because I'm on a different level than they are, but I can understand where somebody would look at what we do as brutal. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. So for sure. Yeah. Well, man, um, we had a really good conversation today. I, I would agree. I liked it. I liked it too. All right, dude. Well, Mr. Bob Polanik, thanks for hopping on. Thanks to everybody for listening. I, I really appreciate it. I want to send one quick shout out, and that is that on the Sportsman's Nation here, man, we have we have introduced three new podcasts within the last month. The Michigan Sportsman, the uh, Missouri Woods and Water podcast, and then starting this coming Monday is the average conservationist podcast and that is the official podcast of the uh, two of two percent for conservation so go check those podcasts out uh, enjoy all the all the content that's on the sportsman's nation including the youtube channel that both my that both bob and myself have uh access to or uh, access to uh, put put videos on and then bob uh what else do we do together just randomly BS about hunting all the time. <laughs> That's where you step in and you're supposed to say the hunting gear podcast is also on the, on the sportsman's nation podcast network. All right. The, uh, hunting gear podcast. <laughs> all right. Let's call this episode over. All right. Thanks for having me on Dan. And that brings us to an end of this episode. Huge shout out to Bob for hopping on once again and chit-chatting with me. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Ozonics, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Average Conservationists, and Vortex Optics, man. Uh, please go support the companies that support this podcast because, you know, it goes full circle. And, uh, yeah, that's how it works. But. Most importantly, thank you, the listeners. And without you guys tuning in every week, this is not possible. So uh, huge shout out to you. Thanks for tuning in and share this podcast with your friends. If you feel that uh, conversations like this will benefit somebody, please, 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 please uh, share that with them. If, if you feel that anything that we talk about has benefited you in the past, please reach out to me. Let me know. I love... Yeah, I, I tell you what, I probably spend a couple hours a day just replying to people on Instagram and Facebook because I feel if you give me the time to reach out to me, I should give the time to reach out back to you. So don't be afraid to hit me up with questions, DMs, uh, whether you have a strategy question or a gear question or, you know, just pick my brain about something, man. I love, I love having those conversations. So uh, other than that, other than that, I tell you what, guys, you have a good rest of your week. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to you next time.